0: Hi, y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, back by the woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. The American presidents from the 1800s I hear get brought up the most in history or political conversations these days are usually Abraham Lincoln, Andrew Jackson, and Thomas Jefferson, sometimes James Madison, or John Quincy Adams, or Ulysses S. Grant, but never, and I mean never, Franklin Pierce. All the same, the one-term president is worth looking at, if for anything, on how not to govern a country or one's party. Here back by the woodpile to help us get a grasp of President Pierce's misfortunes is Dr. J. David Alvis, a professor of political science at Wolford College and Ashland University. So okay. we're going to talk about Franklin Pierce today. I think the last time I heard his name even mentioned, it was uh, they were talking about some of the presidents that are kind of considered... Somewhat insignificant. Uh, So you're on here today to to correct that perception.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure I can correct that perception, but it is—he is a strange choice. You know, if you offered somebody the opportunity to talk about a president, right, the last thing on earth—that one of the last names you would probably ever think of would be Franklin Pierce. Right. Um, You know, he's certainly not one of the presidents you would choose, right, if you're even a presidency scholar of hanging a picture in your office, (laughs) Um, he's really kind of ranked as one of the uh, lowest uh, uh, presidents in in terms of uh, the ranking of significant presidents. And also too, um, he's one of the very few, maybe the only president besides um, Millard Fillmore, who really doesn't count here, that was a sitting president um, for his first term and then was denied by his own party the re, uh, the renomination for a second term. Wow. Uh, so when you can't even get a, your own party to nominate you for a second <laughs> term after you sat for the first term, you're really in bad shape. The beginnings of his political career, his presidential career didn't seem very promising. In the democratic nomination in 1852 franklin pierce was not really a name for the De- democratic nomination when the uh, democratic convention met and his name is never even mentioned until very late in the balloting what happens is that so the 1852 democratic convention boasted a number of really important important names for the uh presidency uh, you had james Buchanan. Uh, you had uh, William Marcy, uh, you had Lewis Cass, and you had uh, Stephen Douglas. So these are, these are the big names, mm-hmm. right? And Frank, Franklin Pierce is nowhere uh, among those names. And what happened was that uh, the Buchanan supporters um, were getting close to getting a, a, a two-thirds majority for the for Buchanan, but they couldn't quite get there. And so, to prove a point, what they did was is that they tried to they went ahead, they nominated minor candidates to show their voting strength and to show the other candidates that there was no way they could you know they could defeat Buchanan. And it turned out the strategy backfired. And so Franklin Pierce's name starts to creep up to the the top, at least to the top third. And then, right, they still can't get a majority behind Buchanan, and so by the time they get to the 49th ballot, 49th ballot, Franklin Pierce gets the nomination. And Pierce is a weird choice in some ways for the Democratic Party in 1852. Uh, Here's a guy who did not have much of that significant a political career. Uh, he had been, you know, he had been in state politics in New Hampshire, which, by the way, is a very marginal Democratic state. Mm-hmm. So he's from a very marginal Democratic state, uh, New Hampshire. He served a term in the he served served uh, maybe one, I think, one term in the House, and then uh, served one term in the Senate. Not really particularly proffering a stellar record. He was an able senator, but not particularly. Uh, big. Then he retires from the Senate and goes back into legal practice uh, in the state of New Hampshire. And he hadn't been in political office in 12 years between the time that he retired from the Senate and the point at which he gets the nomination in 1852. You know, this was a time, right, when parties, the Whigs and the Democrats, were nominating former uh, generals uh, for political office. He had served as a brigadier general in the Mexican-American War, but he didn't have a particularly stellar record there either. Uh, most of the war he was injured, uh, or he was sick, and many people uh, labeled him a coward. It wasn't true, but they labeled him a coward after the Mexican-American War. So he is the weirdest choice you could possibly have right, for the nomination in 1852. So I guess that, that, you know, that kind of raises the question, why, why was he chosen? And actually, the choice of Pierce actually makes more sense uh, than it seems at first. Uh, the nomination in 1852 comes at a very difficult time for the Democratic Party. Uh, they had lost the previous election uh, in 1848. They had lost to uh, uh, Zachary Taylor.
0: Who, who was a Whig, they, right? Uh,
1: yes, yeah, so, so they lost to the Whigs, right, in, in 1848. Uh, so Louis Cass, the Democratic nominee, loses to uh, Zachary Taylor. A lot of it is the fallout from the ambitious uh, enterprises of James K. Polk. Polk, you know, comes to the presidency at the time of Manifest Destiny. He's a Jacksonian. He's very much into expansion. So you've got, you know, the Oregon um, uh, project. You've got the Mexican-American War. So this very ambitious uh, adoption of Uh, new uh, lands throughout the um, Northern Hemisphere. The problem with the um, lands that are acquired, particularly from the Mexican-American wars, is that they create a, it creates a huge argument that leads to internal divisions uh, within the Democratic Party over the extension of slavery uh, into the territories. And so the, the party practically flies apart and that's actually part of the reason why the democrats lose in 1848 is, is that they're split between uh traditional uh, democrats right and um and free soilers right mm-hmm. and so van buren a former democrat runs as a third party and ultimately that leads to the victory of, of zachary taylor so there's you know you what you've got are these extremely principled divisions emerging within the jacksonian democratic party and that's particularly problematic for jacksonians because the whole jacksonian political system is a based on reconciling basic material interests right that's the essence of jacksonianism uh is sort of log rolling bargaining negotiating between various interests you don't want principled politics because jacksonianism itself arises as a sort of uh rebellion against that high-minded patrician style politics that predated um jackson's uh, rise to power so the, the party is kind of unraveling uh, over these really principal distinctions. And finally, what brings the party back together temporarily is the Compromise of 1850, um, which Stephen Douglas is, uh, successfully gets through. So, you know, Henry Clay was originally the architect of it, but Stephen Douglas is the one who successfully uh, pushes it through. And so, by 1852, the Democratic Party is looking for a candidate that can heal all of these wounds and get, you know, get Jacksonianism back to its first principles, um, or at least get it away from all of these uh, divisive uh, uh, conflicts, right, that have been stirred up by expansion uh, and the issue of slavery. And so, what Pierce is going to be dedicated to. Is a belief right that the 1850 compromise is the solution to everything, and what we're going to do is devote ourselves to maintaining uh, the aspects of that of that compromise. And in some ways, Pierce's the fact that Pierce has been out of political office for so long means that he's not tainted right by any of these divisions right, right. that have gone on uh, for the last you know at least five or six years uh, of national politics. And also, too, he's a northerner, right, who is willing to defend uh, the interests of slavery. Uh, So he seems to kind of reconcile some of these differences in the party. He also, too, he did do his party a service in the election of 1848, and that is is that he did keep New Hampshire on the side of Lewis Cass and kept it from going over to the Free Soilers, despite the fact that New Hampshire often tended to be a hotbed of abolitionism. Is is that kind of service that, and and the fact that he's in some ways removed from politics and removed from the taint of things that went on during that period in which they had to come up with the Compromise of 1850, he's not tainted by any connection to these interests that feel burned, that they thought, okay, here's someone who can in some ways restore the party and bring everything back together.
0: It's interesting you talk about how the Democratic Party was so fractured because yeah. their rival party, the Whig Party, would, would become so fractured themselves they would end up imploding and cease to yeah. become a party. Can you talk about the similarities of why both these parties were having so much problems, which, of course, I would say foreshadowed the coming Civil War in a lot of ways?
1: Yeah, the the key to the parties was to be able to maintain an, a north-south axis during the Jacksonian era and so that means you know you ha- you have to be able to reconcile uh, the northern Democratic interest right which is primarily tends to be commercial and not interested in promoting slavery it doesn't mean they were necessarily against slavery but they're not interested in promoting slavery you got to you got to reconcile them with the m- much more agrarian non-commercial, South that is primarily thinks in terms of sla- of the slavery interests first, and so both the Democrats and the Whigs have a difficult time doing that because that there really is two different agendas on each side of the party, and the key is how can you reconcile those, and actually in some ways the Democrats ended up in the long term being able to do much better at that than the Whigs. Uh, the Whigs right really ultimately. By the time you get close to the Civil War era, right, there's just not much of a reason for Southerners to be Whigs, Mm -hmm. and so the Southern wing of the Whig party completely collapses, and without the ability to maintain that bisectional axis, the party just doesn't really have a lot of purpose for existence.
0: While Pierce was in office, did he have to, I don't know, put out fires that kept coming about within the party?
1: Yeah, so that... That ends up being Pierce's major goal, right? As president, is essentially to put out these put out these fires and to reconcile the wings of the party. So Pierce faces kind of two choices, right? And that is, he can either align himself with the moderate Democrats in Congress, which there's a large number of them. They constitute almost they constitute a majority in the House and the Senate. And especially with the election of 1852 i mean the strategy of the democrats in nominating pierce actually worked i mean pierce destroyed winfield scott in a landslide um in that election also too they uh the democrats won big numbers in the house and the senate so what pierce could do is align himself with the moderates and that's kind of what the moderates expected um with that he would align himself with them and that they would call the shots, right, from uh, uh, from Congress. The, the problem is, though, that that's a misreading or misunderstanding of what happened in the election of 1852. It is true that Pierce won by a landslide in terms of electoral votes, but he won a bare minimum, right, on the popular vote, barely got over 50 percent, and – the key right to his success in the election was the ability of democratic party regulars right the insiders running the democratic machine to basically convince the extremists not to bolt the party so you know the free the free soilers in the north and then you know the southern fire eaters right the democratic party managers right Unlike in the election of 1848, in 1852, they convinced those extreme elements to stay within the party and not to bolt and not to form third, uh, third parties. That what that means for Pierce, and what Pierce understands is, is that he cannot align himself with the moderates because that's not how he won the election. The key would be to palliate or, or satisfy the extremes and try to keep them in the party. And so that's really his first task. And so his very first initial job as president really illustrates this well. So the first thing he focuses on is what democratic, what Jacksonian Democrats, right, always focus on, and that is patronage. So how do you dole out the patronage and the right way to keep the right elements right of the party satisfied and, and, and loyal to your agenda.
0: To explain to folks who may not know, the patronage system was this you know, political system that all the parties did where as soon as their guy got in power, they would nominate um, the people that had supported them into uh, government offices, right?
1: Right, exactly. And, and so one of the places that he really had to focus on were big states like New York right? um, in the north. Because there, right, you've got all these uh, free soilers, right, who had previously bolted the party, but basically swallowed their pride in the election of 1852 and came back into the democratic fold. So the first goal was you got to distribute the patronage, right, uh, to these free soilers uh, who basically were willing to make that sacrifice uh, in the election. But the problem is, is that the political offices were primarily held in the state of New York by lifetime loyal Democrats who did not want to share the offices in any way with these free soilers and viewed them as basically treasonous uh, to the party, basically traitors to the party. So they refused to, to share. So they're kind of known as they, – they got the nickname the hard shells. They just refused to, to share any of the offices. And so when Pierce tried to instruct the various Custom House officers and others to share the offices, they simply refused his own Democratic Party members. So then he had to submit to the Senate a whole list of new appointments in order to be able to distribute these uh, offices around. The problem is, is that right, he spends a lot of time trying to get political offices right to uh, former Free Soilers. And so southern hotheads, right, southern fire eaters, view this as a personal betrayal of them. So they start getting dissatisfied. And even though there's only a minority of them in the Senate, they basically slow down all of the appointments for uh, for Pierce. So Pierce, you know, is trying to bring back in the extremes of the party. He's exactly right, right? You can't throw you in your lot with the moderates you got to work to try to bring back in all of the uh, extreme elements back into the party in a loyal way and he gets bogged down in that in the first you know few months of the office and it really kind of illustrates right the, the it illustrates that problem of when the party's right in divided and in shambles right trying to bring the party back together in, in an inoffensive way it turns out to be extremely difficult to do and, and in some ways that's why i also too i choose franklin pierce uh, to talk about is is that he illustrates right this temptation to try to fix your party and bring it back to its or sort of, you know better days as halcyon days by choosing this very inoffensive person right to do it and it almost always has this kind of same disastrous consequence so the moderates have their own plan, right? And the moderates say, look, you know, forget about these appointment, doing all these little appointments and places not like New, uh, like, uh, New York, they, they have a plan, right? Which is, let's focus on railroads, right? Railroads connect the nation, they bring the nation together, right? Why don't we focus on, on railroads? That does raise a question though, and that is where are you gonna put the railroad? Because railroads are very expensive to build and they, t- they take a lot of time and a lot and a lot of effort and there's a lot of politics that goes with building a railroad. So there's one proposal for a railroad and that is a railroad that will go essentially – the idea is you want to bring in the west, right? Bring it in, in and unify it with the rest of the country. A railroad's a great way to do that. So one possibility is a railroad that goes uh, from the – one of the port centers, right, of the Midwest, say Chicago, and run that, you know, along uh, to the West, out to San Francisco. Um, The other possibility, right, would be a transcontinental railroad uh, through the South. And so one of the leading moderate Democrats, right, is a man named Stephen Douglas, whose proposal is to build a railroad from Chicago to San Francisco, but it would have to go through uh, an, a territory known as the Nebraska Territory. There's a bit of a problem about building this, uh, this railroad through the Nebraska Territory. Um, one is, is that the South will perceive it as a northern project, so they're not going to be on board with it to begin with. Second thing is, is that you're going to have to take it. If you're going to go through this territory, you got to organize that. You're going to have to organize that territory so that it can service right the junction lines right for that for that railroad. And the problem is this: if you're going to organize that territory into s- potential states, right? How is what kind of states are those going to be? Because the, there's a lot at stake about whether or not they come in as free states or as, if they come in as slave states. Douglas kind of wants to avoid this issue by just not say any, saying anything. Let's just not say anything about the slavery issue and bring them in as slave states. You know, they had done that with the um, Mexican Cession lands right after the war, Mexican-American War. They did that with New Mexico and Utah territories. They just didn't say anything about the issue of slavery, and so he proposes kind of doing the same thing with those territories. Well, the Southerners are not very happy about that because they already feel like they haven't really gotten that much out of these new lands right from the Mexican-American War. There's not going to be any slavery in Utah, probably not in New Mexico, and they're always being outvoted by the north. So they want something out of this before they agree to a northern railroad route. And so they start insisting right, that um, those areas right, be open uh, to the possibility of slavery, which Douglas is willing to concede as long as we just don't say it, right? Fine, we'll just, we'll just leave it open. But they point out, well, if you just leave it open, it's gonna be closed to slavery because insofar as you have that famous Missouri Compromise line, that 3630 line, you can't bring your slaves into that territory. So therefore it will automatically become a free territory. So what they demand is they demand the repeal of the Missouri Compromise. But the Missouri (laughs) Compromise is this sacred line, right? kind of dividing the issue of slavery, North and South. Douglas is trying to figure out, okay, how do I deal with this, right? The South insists, right? You gotta repeal the Missouri Compromise line. How do I deal with it? We're also, too, you know, the compromise of 1850 had finally gotten rid of this nasty, nasty debate on the issue of slavery. You know, how can I how can I make this work? And so his proposal is the following, and that is it involves some fiction. Okay, what we'll do is we will repeal the Missouri compromise line. But we're not going to say it that way. <laughs> what we're going to say is this. We're going to say that the 3630 parallel uh so there's a number of steps to this fictional story that he's going to tell that 3630 parallel he argues right first of all it's important to note that that 3630 parallel went right all the way across under the state of missouri and out all the way over to the pacific ocean now, I want to point out that is uh, fiction, right? Remember right. the 3630 parallel only covered the territory – for the purposes of the Missouri Compromise, only covered the territory known as the Louisiana Purchase, right? Mm-hmm. didn't go all the way to – which did not go all the way to the Pacific. But he needs this part of the line, right? We're going to say that it went all the way to p- the Pacific. Then when we got the Mexican session, right, from the Mexican-American War, that – territory straddled the Missouri the 3630 parallel north and south so sorry it's, it's usually easier to visualize this with a map right but in front of you but all right that area straddled the 3630 but when they decided how to deal with the issue of slavery there officially what they they did was they just didn't they just made said we were going to make no reference to the issue of slavery what that in fact kind of means in practice is that the areas themselves will decide whether or not we want slavery what douglas says is oh no 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 what we decided was this doctrine called popular sovereignty that is the right of people to decide right whether or not they want slavery or not now the original version right did not really say that it said basically we're just not going to talk about it Douglas right, says, no, 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 what they were saying, right, when they settled those lands was a principle decision, we're gonna have popular sovereignty, we're gonna let people decide for themselves. Douglass' argument is because that straddled that 3630 line with the popular sovereignty doctrine, ultimately what happened is the Compromise of 1850, right, that established that, ultimately overruled the 1820 Missouri Compromise, And therefore, the Missouri Compromise no longer applies, right, to the Utah and New Mexico Territory, and it doesn't apply to the Nebraska Territory. In other words, his argument is that the 1850 Compromise got rid of the 1820 Compromise, and so therefore, right, our commitment to the 1850 Compromise, which is what Pierce is all about, is perfectly consistent with the idea of introducing the possibility of slavery in the Nebraska Territory. If all of that seems very hard to follow, yeah, hard other, for other people to follow too. They said, "What? What? What?" <laughs> because it's based all on these various elaborate lies, right? The thing is, is that when you lie, right, you really want to make it simple for people to understand. This required multiple stages of lying in a complicated series of arguments. And what really is amazing is, is that what douglas expected people to accept was the idea that they had suddenly repealed the missouri compromise and didn't know it <laughs> and, that, and and then right that is the position that douglas takes right and says and, and he offers this to pierce and pierce hears about this right he's like no this is just a terrible terrible idea so it's kind of tabled for a while right but that's kind of ends up being what the moderate, it's right. want to stay. They want to do – they want to make their next project this Nebraska project. Pierce is not interested in this at all. He sees this as a total dead end, right? And it will only just resurge all of those uh, arguments over slavery again. It won't really help get resolve the issue. So what, what Pierce decides to focus on is, is going back to something that people seemed to like at one point about Jacksonianism, really liked. And that was the idea of manifest destiny let's go back to territorial expansion and really push that you know because you know once you know you're engaged in in acquiring new territories every everybody can get behind that right expanding democracy uh, across the globe but just one thing he want to note here is, is that by the time you get to the compromise of 1850 and after the polk administration a lot of people are kind of tired of manifest destiny mm-hmm. i mean you know it's led to lots of questionable wars it hasn't really produced harmony it's really in, in some ways produced much more division and also to the other group that really sort of begins to lose interest in manifest destiny and expansion is the south the south is kind of done right they just you know with all those new lands they they got from mexico they get nothing out of that, and in fact, it probably will turn out to be harmful to them in the future. Right? Those those areas will probably become free states, mm-hmm. and so like one one person that warned about this was John C. Calhoun. It's like there's nothing in this for us, really. <laughs> you know, it's, it started out about Texas, right? But really, you know, that was fine because that was already a slave state or a a, a, a slave republic. But all of these new lands really are actually just sort of hemming in the South. So the South is kind of done with expansionism. So the question becomes, right, like who are you going to find, right, to rejuvenate this whole notion of manifest destiny and young America and expansionism uh, in the South? It turns out, right, you actually have to look for some really weird people in order to kind of get this project right uh, back on track, this sort of manifest destiny and expansionism. So the thing is, is that you gotta find in the South, right? People who still care, you know, about expansionism, and particularly, you got to find people in the South who are kind of almost imperialist, mm-hmm. right, and want to expand. Which turns out to be an extremely small, eccentric group of Southerners. One of them is a guy named William Walker, uh, and William Walker is—he uh, was, gosh, he was everything. He was uh, originally trained as a physician. Uh, then he became a lawyer, and then he ended up running a newspaper in San Francisco. And this Walker, he was a very enterprising. Uh, William Walker was a very enterprising guy, and he's, he he lands upon this uh, project, right? You kind of back then you kind of call it, you know, maybe piracy or filibustering, in which he's going to take portions, right, of Lower California that belonged to Mexico like the Baja region of, of Mexico so he recruits troops and marches into Baja California and tries to start this new republic of Sonora and the idea is is that you're going to build this larger republic he's going to make it a sl- uh, slave republic so he can get funding from the south and sort of just keep you know keep keep moving keep adding you know new territory i guess through Mexico this will sort of enhance the South because you know, the South is lo- you know, has the prospect of losing influence of power in the Senate. You know, maybe if we start taking over Mexico, we could start adding slave states. In fact, there was a secret society that was formed later on that sponsored William Walker uh, known as the Knights of the Gold Circle. And the vision, right, was is that they would take over Mexico and turn it into 25 or 26 new slave states. Wow. Um, so, so Walker's Walker starts with this project. Um, it turns out it doesn't end up going uh, particularly well, but it is done with the blessing of the Pierce administration. He ends up invading and taking over the area for a while, but he can't. He turns out he can't really hold on uh, to the area. Uh, so eventually, right, he gets thrown out. They tried to prosecute him for in the U.S. for violations of neutrality laws, right? but no, no jury would convict him. And then he actually moved on to a project of trying to take over Nicaragua, oh, wow! Uh, which he acted, he did successfully do for a while. He, go, he goes down to Nicaragua during a revolutionary period there. He ends up uh, becoming the generalissimo or the president of Nicaragua, holds on to it for a while. Um, then ends up taking all of the the shipping of Cornelius Vanderbilt. And Cornelius Vanderbilt ends up hiring people to try to kill William Walker, right? He basically funds an army to, to take down uh, William Walker. And eventually Walker uh, is taken out from uh, Nicaragua.
0: Wow. So, the,
1: <laughs> so you got William Walker. He's doing this all, you know, with the support of the uh, – with some support from the Pierce administration and particularly um, – uh, Jefferson Davis, who is the um, Secretary of War for um, Pierce, right? Then another guy they get right to kind of carry on this expansion project is is that um, they get this guy named James Gaston from South Carolina. I don't know if he was a direct protege of John C. Calhoun, but he was very much like Calhoun. He supported nullification. He supported secession. He was very strong pro-slavery, but Unlike most Southerners who are fairly provincial, he's actually an imperialist and a, com- a commercial imperialist. Um, and he's head of a, a company that's trying to promote a, a train route right through the, the South. So Gaston right, is this particularly motivated individual who really wants to start this um, uh, transcontinental railroad right through the, uh, through the South. He's also too very ambitious. Uh, he's also too kind of imperialist, right? Part of this sort of new group of Southern imperialists. And so the Pearson administration taps him to go negotiate with Mexico for new land. And so when is sent down to Mexico, right? The guy who ends up being becoming president in Mexico is Santa Ana. Oh. <laughs> Santa Ana, right, remember Santa Ana, right, had that devastating loss in the uh, Texas Revolution. He ends up, right, thrown out, and he basically claws his way back somehow into the presidency in Mexico, you know, and on like the first week of his presidency, here's a guy right from the United States who wants to talk about land, You got to imagine Santa Ana. It's like, oh, not this again. (laughs) You understand how much it took for me to get back up here. Right now you come here and you say land. So Gaston, right, Gaston ends up trying to negotiate with Mexico, right, and ends up he has a proposal for a pretty large chunk in Mexico because, you know, if if it's not a big thing, right, it's not really manifest destiny. You haven't resurrected Jacksonian uh, expansionism. So he has a proposal for a big thing. The Santa Ana administration, right, says well, no, we're not going to give you that big thing. But for a lot of money, we'll give you this little bitty thing. Uh, <laughs> you know, basically, you know, just uh, Tucson and the surrounding areas, um, and, uh, and you can have that right for, for, for quite a chunk of change. So so Gaston comes back to the administration, right, to the Pierce administration, and this is all he's got to show is this little tiny purchase, right. As Taylor Swift says, right? You know, band-aids can't fix bullet holes. <laughs> and the Gadsden Purchase is not exactly the revival of Jacksonian expansionism. Uh-huh. You know, so they put that now in front of the in front of the Senate. The South is not particularly impressed with this. So they need something else, right? And so they look around, right? And they and they find right the one thing that every expansionist has ever dreamed of getting, but never have got, never gotten, and that is. You got to go for Cuba. Mm. Then they start their Cuba project. And the Cuba project is fascinating, right? Because there's been an attempt, right, by a number of sort of filibusters or pirate, sort of piracy to liberate the island in the past from Spain. And a former governor of Mississippi named John Quitman ends up leading this sort of private mercenary expedition to liberate Cuba. And Pierce endorses this, and so the this guy equipment, right? He's got he's basically being funded by a sort of junta out of uh, New York City, and he's got his own kind of navy, and they're going to go down and, and liberate Cuba. Well, Spain hears about this, and so Madrid sends over this kind of crazed captain, uh, army captain, right? Named Marquis de la Pezuela, de la Pezuela. Gets there and says, "Okay, if I'm going to avoid this, you know, takeover from this this private filibuster expedition, the key is numbers. And in Cuba, you've got a very, very small white population, and then you've got an enormous enslaved population. So what Donosela decides to do is a project called Africanization, in which he's going to liberate all the slaves and arm them, and disarm the whites." and then right the slaves will be very 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 motivated right to uh repel this invasion this is not what madrid or spain wanted <laughs> this is a little kind of horrified by this whole thing and so quitman right this is going also too poses a big problem for Quitman. it doesn't look like he's going to be able to do much here the pierce administration begins to worry about this whole thing and, uh, you know, the international scandal. So what they decide to do is, is that they decide to go a, kind of an in route around the original plan. And they send a guy named uh, Pierre Soulet he's, he's a former Louisiana senator. He might have been present Louisiana senator. They send him to Spain. Now, this is the worst choice of an emissary you could possibly pick to Spain. So Soulet is also part of this class of... Uh, new sort of imperialist Southerners, mm-hmm. and uh, he had actually he had actually funded um, William Walker's expedition into Nicaragua. And Soule, Soule grew up in southern France, and Soule was a sort of anti-royalist, right? Uh, opposed the Bourbon monarchy. I mean, he wasn't just a French revolutionary; he was sort of like an extremely radical, red French reactionary um, on the extreme side of uh, liberalism so he grew up right there and then uh, he ended up being uh, prosecuted in France for his extremism then he ended up in Haiti for a while and then he ends up in Louisiana and so he still got his sort of extreme sort of French revolutionary disposition but he also combines it with a sort of pro-Southern pro-slavery position so I mean it's just a bizarre combination of various uh, ideas so they're going to send this guy to the court of Spain, right, to deal with, them, with the monarchy and negotiate for Cuba. Unlike the first week, who is it, the Mar- Marquis de, T- de Tourgeau, uh, who's the French ambassador, supposedly makes a mocking remark about Soule's clothing, uh, his uh, décolletage, right? Soule's response is to shoot the man in the knee. Good grief. And cripple him for life. Wow. So the negotiations are going very badly from the beginning. <laughs> then Sule leaves the court and works with the Spanish Liberal Party to try to create a revolution to oust the monarchy. Oh man. Primarily so that we could buy Cuba at a better price. Wow. Then that doesn't work. Then there's an an episode right in which Bozuela down in um, Cuba, in which uh, one of the ships, right, just in a temporary docking moment, uh, a temporary docking plan, touches off in in Cuba, known as the Black Warrior, and under pretenses of wrong of having the wrong papers or presenting fictitious papers, this is an American ship. Bozuela then holds the ship in in Cuba. And this creates some outrage, right, in the United States. And so at this point, Sule goes back to the court, to the Spanish court, and tells the Spanish court, because you've done this, right, you have two choices now. You can either sell us Cuba or we are going to declare war on Spain.
0: Did he have the authority to say that?
1: So, fortunately, the Spanish suspected he, did, he was not actually authorized by uh, the administration to make this threat. And so they didn't take him seriously. And so, no, he was definitely not authorized. Well, actually, wait a minute. That's a, that's a great question. The Secretary of State for Pierce, William Marcy, had sent Soule a cryptic letter in which he said to Suley, make an offer to buy Cuba or find another means of detaching the island from Spain. So Suley took that as authorization to threaten war. That did go in the administration's mind well beyond what they meant by their subtle suggestions. But uh, uh, Suleil could I think in some ways claim right well, this is probably what the administration has in mind anyway. at this point though the, the administration is sufficiently embarrassed right that they kind of distance themselves from Soule, though they don't actually entirely pull him out of Spain and so Suleil's still there they're not they're not giving him any more orders or suggestions or anything like that. So Soleil then decides to meet up at aix la chapelle with France with James Buchanan uh, and then I think the American Parisian uh, ambassador. I'm, I'm sorry. They meet at um, – originally at, at Austin in Belgium. And then later uh, they go to aix la chapelle to work out the details. But they meet originally in Austin, and they put together what becomes known as the Austin Manifesto. And the Austin Manifesto basically makes the argument, right, that Cuba must and rightfully belong to us, right, and that any refusal, any hesitancy in taking uh, Cuba is a provocation to the South because Cuba, right, is ultimately going to release its slaves, and those slaves will end up invading uh, the South, right, from Cuba. And so they argue that it's a moral imperative, right, that in order to prevent that, we have to take Cuba. And so they distribute this Austin Manifesto, right, which just embarrasses, right, the um, Pierce administration to no end. So, you know, all of this craziness, right, is partly from Pierce, right, having to look for extremes in order to rejuvenate, right, what he would regard as the traditional Jacksonianism, uh, a Jacksonian expansion project. It's just that there's no one in the South, right, except these crazy lunatics who care about it anymore. And so the more that he tries to revamp traditional Jacksonianism, the more he has to rely upon completely unreliable people. And so his project, (laughs) right, just ends up being one disaster after another of, of trying to do this, right? And so it's, it's at this point, right, where Pierce right, really faces a critical choice, and that is nothing is working. You know, Manifest Destiny is clearly not going to be rejuvenated, right? He's not going to be able to get any, any mileage out of this. Ultimately, the, the party managers, this moderate uh, group, right, including Douglas and others, demand, right, that Pierce meet with them. And, and they force him to meet on a Sunday. Right? Pierce is very upset about that right? he doesn't like to work on Sundays they tell him you don't have a choice you are going to meet and what they do is they put this proposal in front of him for his new agenda and that is the Kansas and Nebraska Act they kind of try to make it look like it's consistent with his commitment to holding the party together around the compromise of 1850 to, to Pierce's credit I think Pierce saw that this was not as clever as they thought it was And that, in fact, right, it would uh, be disastrous. But at this point, really, he has no choice, and so ultimately, he agrees to the party, and then that means the party now gets to take over, right? You know, Pearson's not going to be able to rule on his own terms, right? Rather, the party will manage this. It turned out that Kansas-Nebraska Act was no easy thing. Uh, It was a four months of legislation and nasty, nasty arguments in Congress. And it didn't go the way that the Democrats planned. The Democrats thought it was a slam dunk, and it would heal divisions and lead to a new to new opportunities. What instead it led to were harsh indictments and claims of a conspiracy to turn the nation into a slave nation. And so, by the time that you get to midterm elections in 1854, right after the uh, Kansas-Nebraska Act is passed those democratic majorities that pierce came in with in 1852 they completely disappear and it also too it isn't like they disappear and are replaced by traditional opposition whigs rather parties right you know people had never heard of start coming in there's groups right that have never been in congress before they get there right so you get lots of free soilers but you also get people like know nothings and you get no and then there's some groups you no know, no somethings and locofocos right <laughs> and just groups right? nobody had ever heard of it. And, and so you know the first problem they had in 1854 was they couldn't figure out how, how to choose a speaker of the house because they only like, they didn't even know who had a majority
0: right.
1: i mean just everything comes falling apart that's when bleeding kansas occurs that looked attractive about the whole idea of popular sovereignty was that it looked like it was a return to that notion of jacksonian local self-government and states rights right you know letting letting localities determine for themselves right whether they wanted to be slave or free was just like states determining if they want to be slave or free so it, it had a sort of Jacksonian ring to it. So there was something attractive about it. It looked like it could be the new principle that restored the party, this this notion of popular sovereignty. But when it got played out on the fields of Kansas, it was clear that it was not a solution to anything. You know, you had, you know, Missouri and what are called ruffians, right? Pro-slave elements rushing across the border during election times to vote. You got the New England Aid Society sending down abolitionists right into Kansas to vote. Then it splits into two, you know, two go- two governments at once, and then ultimately, right to the bloodshed, right, sometimes in the streets of Topeka or, you know, the John Brown uh, massacres. Right, all those Jacksonian principles of expansionism. Or local self government, they turn into jokes, right, under the Pierce administration. And just shows you by that point how bereft, right, Jacksonianism is.
0: So obviously, as you mentioned at the beginning of this, he wasn't re nominated to become the Democrats' choice for president. So after his presidency, what do people think of him? I mean, does he have like absolutely no power at this point? Or uh, does he go write his memoirs, or you know, is he kind of a laughing stock?
1: Trying to think, and in terms of the assessment of him, it was not very high, right? I um, mean, I don't think it came to, as a major shock to Pierce, right, that the North turned against him. He blamed the North, particularly abolitionists, but mostly the North, in his final State of the Union address in 1856. He blamed them for uh, what what occurred in Kansas their lack of moderation on the slavery issue what came as a shock to him right was, was that the southerners didn't feel that they had any use for him after, after 1856. he had gone so far to try to conciliate their extremism on the one hand the south is not fully represented by people like wayne walker and gaston and equipment and others on, on the other hand right a lot of the concern for pierce was to uh reconcile right that bitterness right in the south and its feeling of being robbed of much national influence after the mexican-american war he really tried to do a lot to conciliate them and you know part of the reason for the gas and purchase rate right, was i think to uh, promote a transcontinental railroad in the in the south and also to cuba right cuba would have been a, a big boon to the south and yeah it was it came i think it was a shock to him that the south really had no no use for him at that point
0: so was he bitter till his death about did he felt like he was wronged or he wasn't appreciated
1: yeah the 1856 state of the union address is a uh is a nasty state of the union address right it is really it is really nasty you know you're wrong i'm right it's it's not one of the highlights of presidential speeches so he was quite bitter and um and so he did what often bitter unaccomplished politicians do uh and that is he turned to alcohol oh which has a certain effect on the liver after a
0: while so i've heard
1: (laughs) yes now, also, too, I mean, it's worth mentioning, too, Pierce had a very difficult life, a particularly family life. His wife had always been ill for, long, for a very long period of time uh, with tuberculosis, so she died soon after he left office. Also, too, Pierce lost all three of his children uh, before uh, entering office, including one of them on a, tr- on a horrible uh, train derailment uh, a couple of weeks before occupying the white house also too right he you know he was reputed as a coward after by many people after the mexican american war the fact of the matter is is that he had actually gotten severely hurt during one of the engagements and then simply i think had um, a cholera or something like that during the campaign uh, against Mexico City. um, so like like ulysses s. Grant, right said, you know, Pierce was actually not a coward. He was a a, a very decent soldier. Um but he always he had, always at the wrong time in the wrong place. right? He ended up with the a terrible reputation.
0: but I gotta ask, has anybody after Pierce looked back at their own times and thought, man, we're making the same mistakes that Pierce made?
1: No, because nobody ever wants to compare themselves with Pierce.
0: <laughs> well, of course. I mean, maybe the maybe political enemies of whoever's the president may say, well, you're, we've got another Pierce here.
1: No, but what is helpful, right, is to see that in, in terms of the usefulness of studying Pierce is Pierce faces a classic dilemma that numerous times throughout American history presidents face. I mean, Pierce seemed to offer, right, a real chance, right, to restore the party because of the purity of his um, status, right, before becoming uh, the nominee. He just seemed perfect in every way. He's none of these extremes, but has all elements of all of them. And therefore, he can really reconcile these these different interests. The thing is, is that It's often at those moments, right, that you think, oh, if if we just have the perfect candidate who embodies a little bit of all of these things, but is not of them and comes from the outside, that they can fix all of these problems. And it turns out the moment that you're thinking that, right, is usually the moment right when this will turn tragic, because that there's something tempting about that and always something devastating in the attempt to implement it. So presidents who find themselves in a similar situation to, to um, Pierce would be Hoover mm-hmm. in many ways. Hoover seems like, you know, just like the perfect, you know, he's worked for both Democrats and Republicans. You know, he's really just an engineer. He's a scientist. He comes from the outside. He's not tainted. He'd never had an elected office before. You know, he'll be the fix for all these internal divisions right within the party. And it turns out Hoover actually, you know, brings the Republicans to the point of collapse. I mean, partly it's the Depression, but right. also the more he does, right, the worse it gets. And then you think of Carter. Carter is you know, the perfect Pierce in that sense, right? You know, it comes from the outside. He can heal all these wounds of New Deal liberalism and fix these problems. And it turns out, right, that the more that he tries, the worse it gets.
0: You know, some people have a sense of like, man, I always was standing in the wrong place, right in the middle of a perfect storm. And... If they can admit that that they made the mistakes they did, uh, you you find some of the best people in history, they end up blossoming later because they were able to see their failings and their shortcomings and end up correcting those things and coming back in in a big way.
1: And the problem is, is that it turns out that the choice of candidates, right, is not as accidental or adventitious as it seems. There's actually quite a bit of thought that goes into the choice of a candidate. And the process by which they are chosen in those old primaries, right, is a process that actually does kind of work in choosing the right kind of candidate you need for that moment. And Pierce probably was the the only plausible solution to the dilemma that the Democrats faced in 52. Anyone else I think would have made the situation much worse. Louis Cass, right, and and others. It's just that the political order that they're trying to sustain, right, is just not sustainable. And I think that's the problem Pierce runs into. I mean, Pierce can't suddenly decide one day, I'm not going to be the embodiment of Jacksonian politics. I think Jacksonian politics is a dead end because as soon as he does that, he loses all support.
0: That's rough. If you're still in an American history mood, you should give In the Corner Back by the Woodpile 275 a listen, where Dr. David Krugler contrasts the decades of the 1910s with the 1920s. Also, there's 269, where we look at all the events that pushed the American colonists towards divorce and war with their mother country of Britain. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. (laughs)